Before I pray, I want to say a word to those of you worshiping on the North Campus. It was a great thrill to me to pray with 32 Bethlehem's people on Wednesday morning at 6.30, and I hope you'll come and pray again, and that includes any of you here as well. The owner of the building has accepted our offer, and we now have our work cut out for us, and it's mainly prayer. And so even though I will be in Charlotte on Wednesday morning speaking to the National Religious Broadcasters there, I, I will be with you in spirit as you pray. Let's pray now. Father, we as a church want to be a broken-hearted, humble, bold, and lion-hearted, contrite, courageous people for the sake of Christ in our nation and around the world. And I believe that Paul wrote what he wrote here in order that we would be stripped of our pride and our ethnocentrism and our racism and our anti-Semitism and our boasting and made to cling only to Christ as our righteousness and as our forgiveness and as the ground of our acceptance with you. I pray that that would become plain tonight and not just plain, but very powerful. I pray that those who are worshiping over this message on Sunday morning would experience it as plain and powerful. And I pray that we would be united on two sites for a great and glorious Christ-exalting cause as a humble people to make much of Jesus. So help me now, I pray, to speak in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may those in these rooms who do not know Christ meet Him compellingly and believe. In His name I pray, amen. The last two messages have been um, explanations of reasons that the Apostle Paul gives for why we should not boast or exalt ourselves over Jewish unbelievers. That's what this text has been about. It's a text about getting pride and anti-Semitism and all of its related racisms or ethnocentricities out of our lives. That's what it's about. He had taught that Gentile, non-Jewish people who believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, are made a part of the true Israel of God. And that unbelieving Israel are like branches broken off. He made it plain with a picture. You heard it described as Harold read. There's a root, and the root is the covenant made with Abraham that all of his seed would be everlastingly blessed. And there are branches, some called natural branches, which be Jewish people, and some are unnatural branches. That's Christians who are not Jews. 
And he says that natural branches are broken off and unnatural branches are broken in. So Gentiles who believe in the Messiah, Jesus, are attached to the covenant made with Abraham and have all the hope and all the salvation promised to Israel. And some Jews who are rejecting the Messiah are, are broken off and they don't participate in the very covenant, the very promise made to God's people. And what's startling and what's dangerous about this text is verse 19. Then you will say, speaking to Gentiles in Rome, and to us mainly, who are mainly Gentiles, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And Paul says, that's true. And then he says, verse 18, don't be arrogant toward the branches. And verse 20 at the end, don't become proud, but stand in awe. The very truth that was intended to make them brokenhearted and humble as unnatural wild olive branches that by grace alone have been grafted in, that very truth was about to make them arrogant and proud and exalt themselves over the broken off Jewish branches. And he had to warn us, don't be like that. Don't turn pride-shattering truth into pride-exalting boasting or self-exalting boasting. And he gave reasons. And we've been looking at them. Reason number one was in verse 18 for why we should get pride out of our lives and abstain from all kinds of anti-Semitism. Verse 18, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. That was reason number one two weeks ago. That was reason number one. Second, verse 21 if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. And that's reason number two we looked at last time. Now here's the third reason which we'll focus on tonight. Faith is the only thing that connects you to the tree. And faith, by its nature and its origin, cannot boast. Let's start at verse 19 and then read into verse 20, and you'll see this. Verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. And now here comes the, the argument. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but stand in awe. Your only connection to the tree is faith. It isn't anything you've accomplished. It isn't any qualification that you've produced. And you stay in it and get in it by faith alone. Now, this is not the first time that Paul has put faith over against boasting, is it? Let me read for you Romans 
What then becomes of our boasting? He has just said that God justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now he says, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? The law of works? No, but the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So in Paul's mind, there is something about faith that excludes boasting. When faith is in the rise, boasting goes down. When faith is triumphant, boasting is gone. When faith diminishes, self-exaltation and pride and boasting rise. Now the question tonight is, why? What is it about faith that has that effect on a church or on an individual? There are three answers to that. One is where faith comes from, and a second is what is it, and a third is how do we maintain it. Now, I only have time for the first two in this message. So next week, Lord willing, we'll look at how do you maintain faith so as to stay in the tree and persevere to the end and be an heir of Abraham and saved. But tonight, where does faith come from and what is it? So first, where does it come from? Faith is an act or an experience of the soul. It doesn't happen outside. It happens in the soul, in you. It's your act. And so the first and obvious answer is faith comes from you. If it isn't coming from you, it's not yours, and you don't have faith. But when I ask the question, where does it come from? I'm pushing us back further than that. I want to ask the question, why you, if you have, a dead, spiritually dead, spiritually blind unbeliever, one day were quickened to life and had your eyes enabled to see Christ as compellingly real. Whereas another person reading the same Bible, hearing the same message, didn't. And the biblical answer to that, the ultimate biblical answer to that is that you are, and I am, all of us are, sinners, dead in our trespasses and sin. A veil lies upon our minds. And God, in his mercy, owing us nothing, enabled some of you to see which you nor anybody didn't deserve. You didn't deserve that. Nobody deserves it. The ultimate answer to the question, where does faith come from, is that it's a gift of God arising in the soul 
Ephesians 2.8. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Which is why Paul says it rules out boasting. It's one of the reasons. There are more. You can't boast in a gift. If you boast in a gift as though you deserve the gift, it's not a gift, it's a wage. The Bible clearly distinguishes in Romans 6.23 the wages of sin and the gift of eternal life. If you deserve, you get a wage. If you don't deserve, you get a gift. Faith is a gift. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, in Paul's mind, the relationship between boasting and gifts, if you produce your faith, you can boast in it. If it's a gift, you can't. So if you have more questions about that, that's what the seminar this coming weekend is all about. The sovereignty of God in the pursuit of sinners like us, saving us when we could not save ourselves. So that I'm passing over quickly, even though it's controversial and huge. I invite you back for Friday night. Here's the second question that will fill all the rest of our time. What is faith? What is saving faith? I don't think we talk about this enough. It is so central to our life that we just assume everybody knows what faith is. But I want to talk about it because I don't think that's true. So we've seen that the origin of faith rules out boasting and pride, anti-Semitism that go with them. And now we will see that the nature of faith rules out pride. So we have to ask, what is it? What's the nature of faith? The first thing I want to say is that faith has objective content. It has knowledge. Romans 10.9, the chapter before the one we're in. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, now there's the word, there's the word for faith, only it's a verb, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a fact which one must believe to be saved. Faith is not like the power of positive thinking, just kind of a a vague, general sense of, I affirm anything. Just be affirming, positive person. That is not biblical faith. If you believe God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's content to it. There are facts to it. I, I recommend to you a book. And I wish I had known I was going to say this four weeks ago so I could tell Waylon to put more in the bookstore. But I sent an email to him today and said, get some and put a little sign on it. This is the book that Pastor John recommended three weeks ago. 
J. Gresham Machen, What is Faith? So it's in print, and here's a quote. The Bible certainly tells us that faith involves a person as its object, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is impossible to have faith in a person without having knowledge of the person, close quote. So don't buy into some vague, touchy-feely notion that it's a person, it's not doctrine. Well, of course it's a person, but the second half of that statement is false. I know my wife, and that's a lot more than doctrine, believe me. But I could tell you lots of facts about her. And if I had none, I wouldn't know her. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 Christ is coming back, it says in 2 Thessalonians 1.10, quote, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. How does faith happen? An apostolic biblical testimony is given and the mind embraces it as true. And without that, there is no saving faith. So that's the first thing I want to say about the nature of faith. It has content. It has facts in it. Second thing I want to say is that knowledge and facts are not enough to produce saving faith because the devil has them all better than you do. The devil knows quite well Jesus was raised from the dead. He feels the foot of the risen Christ on his neck. He knows he's raised from the dead and he is not saved. Therefore, knowing that Jesus is raised or any other doctrine saves nobody. That's the second thing that needs to be said. You must believe biblical facts, central biblical facts about Jesus are true, and believing that they are true does not save you. Well, what more then needs to be said about faith so that we have saving faith and not just intellectual assent to facts? And I will now mention what? A bunch of things. There must be trust. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that faith means trust. But I wonder if we know. I wonder if we understand what that is. You ask me, you trust Noel? No wife? Of course, I'm going to say yes, but I know it's an ambiguous answer because I need to ask you before I answer yes, trust her to do what? Sing bass? <laughs> Jump over a building? Not poison me? Not sleep with another man? Answer? No, no, yes, yes. 
This is not easy. Well, it is easy. It's just not thought about very much. In order to know what trust is, you've got to ask, for what? You can't just say, do you trust him? You've got to say, trust him for what? There has to be, there has to be promise. There has to be ability. There has to be intentionality in the one trusted so that your trust can repose on a promise and a promised deed that one can pull off. My wife can't jump over a building. I can't trust her to do that. She won't ever promise me to do it. This is really important because... When you decide what you're trusting a person for, it determines the nature of the trust. Which is why I don't think we can really answer what trusting is until we get at what you're trusting Jesus, God, for. Because the thing you're trusting him for will determine and shape the very experience and nature of the, the rest or the trust in him. So what I have to ask now for the rest of this message is, what am I trusting and what should we be trusting Jesus for? And I have five answers. Number one. We must trust Jesus or God in Jesus and through Jesus for justification. We must trust that he is and did what he needed to be and do to make me acceptable to a holy God even though I am a sinner. I must trust Jesus alone and what he is and what he did on the cross, his righteousness and his blood, to commend a sinner, John Piper, to God, and nothing else can commend me to God. Nothing I have ever done or ever will do. I must trust him like a little child, utterly helpless to get right with God. He will commend me to God for his sake alone as I trust in him for that. And not in myself, not in my deeds, not in my parents, not in my church affiliation or any religious act that I have ever performed. Galatians 2.16 So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. We have believed to be justified. We have believed to be justified. So, if you ask me now, what must I trust him to do for me or to be for me? I would say you must, you must, in order to be saved, trust Jesus to be the ground and the only ground of your acceptance with God. Number two, you must trust him for eternal life. 
1 Timothy 1.16. Jesus Christ displayed his perfect patience as an example to all who were to believe in him for eternal life. Capture that phrase. Believe in him for eternal life. I come to Jesus for eternal life. I want not to go to hell. I want life forever. I don't want to be eaten by the worms. The Bible doesn't even give you that option to make that your final destiny. You will be eaten by the worms if Jesus waits a long time, but that won't be your final destiny. It'll either be hell or eternal life, heaven. And you want this, and it's good to want this, and you come to Jesus alone to get it. Number three, we must trust Jesus for everlasting kindness toward us. This simply defines eternal life. All I'm doing now is expanding point number two. Because some people, they conceive of eternal life as everlasting boredom. I did once. As a child, I was scared of eternity because it just seemed so dreadfully boring. All the portrayals I'd ever heard of it, angels, streets of gold. I like grass, frankly. Uh, every, just all the, all the portraits that, that were laid out to me in my, you know, immature kid heart. I remember going up the spiral steps. We had spiral steps leading to the roof of our house. And I would go up there as about a nine-year-old, and I would lie down on the ceiling, I mean the roof, looking up into the stars at about nine o'clock at night, scared to death just of eternity in heaven. <laughs> Don't assume that heaven is a positive word for kids, or adults for that matter. So when I say we trust him for everlasting kindness, I'm at verse 22 in the text. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. So what I'm trying to get at here is what does it mean to continue in the kindness of God? You've got to continue in the kindness of God. And I think it means believing him to be kind to you all the time, forever. That's hard. That's hard when your baby's going to have half his brain taken out in a few days. That's hard when your spouse has cancer or you. That's hard when the marriage is broken. It's hard when you lose your job. It's hard when a dream that you had in your 20s has faded into a dull, thick, low ache in your 40s and 50s. That's hard. You've got to believe it. God is always kind to his children. Hard times, good times, Pain, pleasure, like a surgeon sometimes has to cut. He's not unkind. He's not unkind. Surgeons are not unkind when they hurt us. 
So I think we have to believe he's that kind of God. We've got to keep ourselves in the kindness of God. And if you ask me, how do you keep yourself there? I say, trust that is surrounding you. You're in it. If you believe, it's surrounding you. And there aren't a lot of people who believe it. And you can tell by how many people get mad at God. Number four, we trust that in Jesus, God will give us only what is good for us. And here you can see I'm just expanding on his kindness and putting underneath it a biblical basis, namely Romans 8.32. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, How will he not with him graciously give us all things? You see what the argument is? God has not spared his own son. He gave him over to smiting, the pulling of the beard, the spitting, the striking, the thorns. He gave him up. How will he not then, Paul asks, how will he not then give us all things with him. If he's done the hardest thing, then surely he'll do the easy things, namely, give us whatever's good for us. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We need to believe that. I don't think you can walk in the way of Christ if you believe that God sometimes is for you and sometimes is against you. Because in the times when you think he's against you, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to despair and become self-centered, or you're going to become a legalist who tries to impress him with your behavior so that he'll like you again. You've got to believe Romans 8.32 and Romans 8.32. 28 and Psalm 84 11. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly in spite of all your losses. My sister just sent me two boxes of photographs from my father's estate because he closed up the big house after his second wife died in September and moved into a little teeny assisted living place and there's no room for anything and so we're back we're just sharing she sent me two boxes of photographs I bawled like a baby and I looked at my dad in the junior high picture of my dad in junior high looks just like me when I was in junior high he's 85 now and then my mother who was killed in Israel in 1974 I have not tasted many losses in my life, just a few big ones. So I've tasted, only tasted. Many of you have suffered so much more than I have. But I do believe, I want to say to you, we need to believe he's for us in those times. I'd love to talk to you more about the practicalities of that, and maybe I will this weekend, this coming weekend. So I'm not saying this naively as though I don't know that there are huge losses that you've endured when I say saving faith is a resting 
in God, a trusting God to be for us in Jesus Christ all the time. Finally, number five. We must um, believe that God is our final and all-satisfying treasure. Treasure. Because, you know, if we stopped right here, we've looked at eternal life, we've looked at justification, we've looked at the kindness of God, and we've looked at His willingness to work everything together for our good. If we stopped right here, we would not be at the bottom of the gospel yet. Because we haven't fully defined kindness, we haven't fully defined what it means for God to be for us, we haven't fully defined what it means for all things to work together for our good because we haven't defined the good yet. And so that's what I'm doing here in this last point. The ultimate kindness of God, the meaning of eternal life ultimately, the ultimate goal of justification, and the cream of every one of His promises is knowing and enjoying the fellowship of God Himself. Though it sounds risky, I think I should say saving faith, at least in teeny-weeny mustard seed-sized form, trusts God to be a final and eternal, all-satisfying treasure for us. He will be for us an all-satisfying joy, which is why if I had it to do over again and I climb those spiral stairs and I lay down on the roof of 122 Bradley Boulevard, Greenville, South Carolina, and I looked up into the sky and I thought of eternity, I would assure myself God Himself will be an infinite and never-ending source of satisfaction. And if it takes grass instead of diamonds, he will give me grass. And I will see in the green, soft, dew-laden morning grass more of God than I would have in the diamond streets, and that's why he'll give it to me. I don't know all that heaven's going to be like. We just get pictures in the Bible. I like them. I like them. I think I could even preach on, on crystal clear streets compellingly today, though I like grass more. I think I could get at what that's really trying to say about the greatness and beauty and worth and treasure of being near God himself. So that's number five. We've got to trust God for his being for us, the joy of our lives and the joy of eternity and the all-satisfying treasure. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That is not a means to anything else. 
Justification is a means to that. His kindness in this age is a means to that. All of our favorite salvation language, justification, forgiveness, atonement, propitiation, reconciliation, it's all a means to that. God himself, known, loved, enjoyed forever. Saving faith, at least in little tiny mustard seed size form. Trust God for that. Believes God for that. So I'm closing by connecting this now to pride because that's the goal of the message. What's the nature of faith and why does it rule out pride? That's where we're going. So now we close with that simple observation. I've concluded that the rock-bottom essence of saving faith is an embracing of our ultimate happiness in God and a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. That's my conclusion of what the essence and bottom of saving faith is. And I say, therefore, when faith is in high exercise, pride, boasting, anti-Semitism, racism, ethnocentrism are impossible. I know they creep in because faith is not always in high exercise. But when we're at our best, by the grace of God and faith is high, those things are crucified and put out of our lives. Now, why is that? Because desperately needy people do not and cannot boast in what gives them life-saving joy. Now, even as I say it, I realize that's an ambiguous way to say it because we are to boast in God. That's not what I mean. I mean I cannot boast that I have now found joy in him. I can't say, look how smart I am. Nobody in the moment of enjoyment does that. Have you ever seen or even conceived a man thirsty to the point of death be offered a canteen of cool, clean, sweet, life-giving water who says, glancing up with his eyes, am I not somebody for enjoying this? It can't happen. It is psychologically impossible when you are desperately needy and find God as your merciful, life-saving joy, you cannot boast in your self, but only in the water. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray now for those worshiping at Northwestern College and for us here now that faith would happen. Grant that we would trust, that we would have knowledge, that we would trust you 
for these five things, especially in and through them all, in and through justification, and in and through your kindness, and in and through eternal life, and in and through everything working together for our good, in and through all of those, may we trust in you as our all-satisfying, everlastingly joy-producing treasure so that boasting becomes for us impossible save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the beauty of his salvation. Lord, if any in these rooms need Christ, grant that they would pray and believe. In his name, I ask it. Amen.